This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for April 15th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, today I'd like to make this a sort of guide for clinicians. You're both infectious disease consultants, and you help medical teams care for COVID-19 patients. So stepping back a bit, it's always true that physicians work with data that doesn't quite fit their patient and then they make judgments about how to apply what's known to the specifics of the case they're dealing with. But in the case of COVID-19, that's more difficult because so little has been rigorously tested. What do you think we know confidently that can help with treating patients? We've learned quite a bit about certain areas. For example, we're getting much more comfortable with what tests mean. We understand more about what a negative test means and what a positive test means and how often we have to do them and repeat them. And in general, we're getting to manage a number of critically ill patients. And that means that clinicians have had experience with how to do ventilatory support best and what sorts of complications are showing up. And specifically, we've learned a lot about those complications and those unusual manifestations of disease, which have shown up as case reports and as experiences in individual hospitals. So, Eric, I agree that we've learned a lot about testing. And Steve, we have to remember that we've only really been thinking about this bug for the last 12 weeks. And in the U.S., really for the last four to six or eight weeks. And as the experience in more countries and in more clinical centers has grown, not only have we better understood how testing behaves, and we're still waiting for serologic testing to really emerge to inform us, but also the nature of clinical illness, particularly the moderate to severe illness associated with hypoxemia of clinical significance and more severe illness, as Eric alludes to, where patients get ventilated and have the complications associated with that supportive care. We know even less about mild illness. Those who are at home who don't need to present to care because the illness is not severe enough. This all is important to understand because it informs us about what kind of treatments we need to think about because treatment for mild illness at home may be very different than moderate illness that may or may not be progressing or someone on a ventilator with additional complications associated with that severity of illness. And as we understand the inflammatory parameters and some of the other aberrant physiologic processes, we're realizing the kinds of illnesses our patients have and the different kinds of treatments they need to be supported. What is the current evidence about some of those treatments? Well, the evidence is rather limited, and that does make making decisions in the hospital difficult. Right now, we're still getting information at the level of case reports and case series for the most part. I'd point out that in the U.S., we've had more than 600,000 cases of COVID-19 as of the time that we're taping, and yet the number of randomized controlled trials that have been done that are placebo-controlled is thus far in the U.S. zero. And in fact, there's really only one large trial that's been done so far in China, and unfortunately, that was disappointing in that the tested drugs, lopinavir and ritonavir, didn't have much of an effect. So we're limited in the kinds of information that we have at hand right now 
to the kinds of things that we can derive from these more limited studies. And Eric, as you suggest, the Bincao study in China looking at lopinavir ritonavir was a remarkable effort to occur so quickly, so early in this epidemic. And it provided us very important information about the activity of this drug in that clinical phenotype, the exact nature of the illness of moderate to severe COVID-19 disease. And our community has developed many RCTs that have been launched that are underway in Europe, in the U.S., for both antiviral and anti-inflammatory strategies, such as the IL-6 inhibition. And we all eagerly await those data as they'll be much more informative than cases or case series. And the challenge to us and our community is how do we accelerate these types of studies? Because they really are the best information to guide us and minimize bias. Because all of us taking care of patients do everything we can to give our patient the best chance of surviving And every day we recalibrate the treatments we give based on what we know and is available at that time, which is why the placebo-controlled or the properly controlled randomized controlled trial is the only way to really minimize those biases and inform us what treatments we should be doing more widely. And how to accelerate these types of studies, I think, is an imperative for all of us in the community. I think we are learning things from the case series that we are seeing. For example, we're learning something about the safety of the agents that people are trying. And I think that is important as it alerts us to what we should be looking for as we use these agents more broadly. In addition, we get some idea of the efficacy of these agents and a rough gauge as to whether or not they seem to be promising. But it really understanding whether or not they work requires an appropriate control group. And it's very difficult to compare with historical controls as our care for patients changes over time. And Eric, I do enjoy how we all look at data and what's emerging somewhat differently. I know you did say that there was zero large RCTs, and that's correct. However, there are many smaller RCTs that have been done for hydroxychloroquine or other agents. And a challenge with small randomized trials is they may not have the power or the design to provide adequate inference as to what the agent can do. And it just further encourages the community to work together to do properly powered studies to really provide information as to how certain drugs can be used in certain clinical illness. I think the challenge with efficacy, particularly in uncontrolled data or case series or compassionate use programs, I find it very difficult to determine efficacy. If everyone dies, that probably is a problem, although they're often used in the most severely ill individuals, so that becomes difficult to interpret. And if everyone lives, it's also hard to interpret in a condition where the majority of people recover, although not necessarily in the setting of severe illness, but in an uncontrolled use, it's hard to compare that severe illness to my patient or to patients more generally who have severe illness. So I think the data are very useful. However, it's challenging to really interpret the efficacy in a specific patient group that is not clearly defined. Lindsay, we've been here before. 
During the Ebola outbreak, there were several trials done of new agents, and in many cases, there was not a placebo control, and the agents appeared to be efficacious as compared to historical controls. But when subsequent studies were done with controls, and in this case, they were comparator agents, it was clear that some agents were far better than others, and in fact, there may not have been any efficacy to some of the widely touted agents in the original studies. So without that information, it's really difficult to know how to treat patients. And I agree with you, it's very difficult to infer efficacy from these non-comparative trials. And I think, Eric, I strongly agree that in the West African Ebola event many years ago, we as a global community were not as quick as we needed to be in standing up clinical trials to determine what works. Several were stood up and partially executed, but due to the outbreak ending, not all of them were able to be completed as designed. In the more recent Ebola outbreak in the DRC, the POM trial and other high-quality RCTs have provided us important information as to what works for Ebola. And I think as a community, that is terrific that we've been able to better position ourselves to respond to these events and to set up properly conducted trials that give us the information to know what works. And now in this coronavirus event, I think the community has responded even faster than the recent Ebola outbreak in DRC, but it's not fast enough given the way in which a respiratory virus spreads as opposed to a filovirus. But I think the community has responded and multiple trials are ongoing, but I think we as a community have to take a hard look at how do we do this even faster in the future because these events are gonna happen more often. We know that we're gonna have more outbreaks in the future. And I think in the current outbreak, We must respond as quickly as we are and do it even faster. And we need to learn how to do it better so that next time we're even faster out of the starting gate. What has slowed us down this time? Is it funding? Is it the human capital that's needed? I think there are a couple of issues. One was simply lack of preparedness. This is an an ongoing discussion. We were not set up to do this right. I think, of course, People are concerned about public health responses, but from a medical research standpoint, I think that we should have been setting up trials in advance, knowing that this was coming. There has been a very good response. I think that there have been rapid approvals of new agents, rapid regulatory approvals of new trials, but they came after everything had started. I think one of the other limitations that's been out there is the idea that placebo-controlled trials do not have equipoise, and that because people are so sick, they can't be assigned to placebo groups, and that the evidence out there, the limited efficacy evidence out there is good enough so that we need to rely on it. I don't think we're there, honestly. I think that there clearly is no great treatment out there right now that we can recognize from the data and that it's very reasonable to treat patients as we're treating them now with good supportive care and compare that with some of these agents. And Steve, I think that what's also different about this event is Ebola or filoviruses have a different transmission dynamic than a respiratory virus and a different disease manifestation. So that we learned a lot from the Ebola outbreaks, which 
have captured the world's attention and helped focus the global community on how to do it better. But the speed with which this coronavirus has spread, like a respiratory virus, and like a respiratory virus with transmission in individuals who may have limited to no symptomatology, made the global spread much faster than I think we as a community were prepared for. How we position data flow between communities so that we know what's going on, it's countries, it's scientific groups, it's the public. How we pre-position trial design. Do we have a framework for RCTs or comparative trials that then can be adapted to the specifics of the pathogen and the country? Some of these things have been thought about over the last several years, but not as much as we need to, given that the bugs, this virus, that has unique characteristics, and we have to have flexibility in the structures we create to respond to that and to respond to that quickly. So we have to have a frame that's good in general that can be individually adapted to both the pathogen, the country, and the type of illness. So is there an existing international structure that can launch these kinds of initiatives, or are we going to have to start building from the ground up? I think you may get different opinions on this. The WHO obviously has a role in coordinating activities among countries, but as an organization that's both voluntary and limited by the input from each of the member countries, it's not the most nimble organization out there. It's not set up to be. It's very likely that national organizations are going to have to take the lead on this, maybe in alliance with other similar national public health agencies and national research organizations in order to coordinate across countries. Many countries are so large and have so much money, the US, China, potentially India, some of these places can do a lot of this work themselves within the country, depending on where those outbreaks occur. I agree, Eric, that the WHO is in the best position to think globally and to respond to these events that cross national boundaries. There needs to be an international agency that facilitates and oversees. But each of our countries are going to have very strong views of how to think about it and how to protect their population. What I hope this coronavirus epidemic teaches us, these pathogens, particularly respiratory pathogens, spread globally like wildfire. And the only way to properly respond is to work in an international coordinated fashion because it moves so quickly. And the WHO, with the major country public health agencies need to be aligned and integrated in a fashion to respond in a coordinated fashion. This has gone on for years associated with influenza, and there are many complexities in those international arrangements. But I hope that this event teaches us that we must solve those problems or else we're vulnerable to the next flu, coronavirus, or other respiratory pathogen that can be transmitted as SARS-CoV-2 is? Steve, I think that the WHO has not been set up ideally for doing, dealing with these sorts of events. And we saw that with Ebola, and we're seeing that to some extent now. The appropriate response, of course, is not to pull funding from the WHO, but instead try to work to make it a stronger organization with the capacity to deal with these sorts of things. I mean, frankly, the WHO is set up to help regulate and help provide expertise to member countries 
uh, rather than to be the response agency. And I think we should be rethinking that role. I'd like to circle back to where we began, looking at things from the point of view of a clinician. What today, given all that you've said about the gaps in our knowledge, what data are you using to make your recommendations for patient care? What are you basing those recommendations on? Well, it's always true that we don't have precise information that applies exactly to the patient in front of us. And so we're always thinking about the data that are out there and trying to understand them in relation to everything else we know. In the case of COVID-19, we know about other respiratory viruses. We have a lot of experience with influenza pneumonia and other sorts of viral pneumonias, for example. And so we can do some extrapolation. There's also a lot of preclinical work understanding the basic pathophysiology of these diseases. And again, we can think through that to try to make our best judgments. None of that replaces the data from an efficacy trial done as a good placebo-controlled study. However, we have to deal with what we have. And it's not that we have nothing. We have quite a bit with which to work right now. Steve, I struggle with this, as I know all of us who take care of patients struggle. And there are different types of data that we think about as we better understand disease pathogenesis with COVID-19, which is being defined, and how much is in a direct viral pathogenicity, how much is an immune dysregulation, how much is associated with other complications, such as a prothrombotic state and hypocoagulability. But on the antiviral, anti-inflammatory pathway, we have in vitro data, preclinical data, anecdotal case data that may suggest activity. We have knowledge of the compounds that are off the shelf, so we have a sense of the safety profile but not of the efficacy profile. And that's where properly controlled trials are desperately needed and are underway. But I do worry a lot about not treating a patient who is sick with something that might work. And I worry a lot about treating a patient who is sick with something that may not work and may have toxicity. And none of our medications, even the -the off-the-shelf ones, don't have side effects. And we need to take that seriously as we look for the hope of efficacy until we have directive data that tells us what works. And hopefully those data will emerge over the next weeks to month as some of the RCTs that are ongoing come to conclusion and are able to inform us in a better controlled fashion. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.